0: This is episode number 573 with Dr. Doris Shin, co-founder and CEO of Linea. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, Let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest is the visionary entrepreneur, Dr. Doris Shin. Doris is co-founder and CEO of Linea, an early stage startup that dramatically simplifies the deployment of machine learning models into production her alpha users include the likes of Twitter, Lyft, and Pinterest. Her startup's mission was inspired by research that she conducted as a PhD student in computer science at the University of California, Berkeley. Previously, she worked in research and software engineering roles at Google, Microsoft, Databricks, and LinkedIn. Today's episode is more on the technical side, so will likely appeal primarily to practicing data scientists, especially those that need to or are interested in deploying machine learning models into production systems. In the episode, Doris details how Linea can reduce ML model deployment down to a couple of lines of Python code, the surprising extent of wasted computation she discovered when she analyzed over 3,000 production pipelines at Google, her experimental evidence that the total automation of machine learning model development is neither realistic nor desirable, what it's like being the CEO of an existing early-stage tech startup, and where she sees the field of data science going in the coming years, and how you can prepare for it. All right, you ready for this captivating and informative episode? Let's go. Doris, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's so exciting to have you here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Welcome, and where in the world are you calling it from?
1: Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm super excited to be speaking with you today. I am calling from San Francisco.
0: Nice. And so I know you through Kevin Hu, who was in episode 541. He had a brilliant episode. Like you, he did a PhD and then has uh, taken some of the inspiration from his PhD to found a company. And so that's kind of a common thread between the two of you. How do you guys know each other?
1: We were introduced by my co-founder, actually, and I think my co-founder got connected with Kevin from uh, a shared research interest.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised you guys have a lot in common and you're both doing incredible things. I can't wait to dig into what you're doing with Linea today for our listeners. It's so exciting. So you're the founder and CEO of Linea. That is correct. And it's an impressive early stage company. At the time of recording, it still says on your LinkedIn profile that it's a stealth startup, but I know that this podcast episode is a big part of your launch. You have lots of exciting alpha users already. you got Twitter, Stitch Fix, Lyft, Pinterest, a company that everyone else pronounces Asana, but I say Asana, <laughs> um, which I'm pretty sure is how you say that in Sanskrit, um, but nobody else seems to know that, so I'm the one who sounds weird. Um, you've had amazing investors already, the CEO of Kaggle, Anthony Goldblum, the co founder of Databricks, DJ Patil, who was the first US chief data scientist, he's also in super data science episode number 355. Hillary Mason is an angel investor, she's coming up in an episode soon this year. And uh, I hear that you have large institutional investors to be announced soon. So Doris, how exciting to be where you are. It's, yeah, it must be an incredible experience to like to transition from your PhD to now have this company launching. How does it feel?
1: It's absolutely incredible. Every day, you learn something new every day. You feel like something every day, and that's how you learn. And this is like nothing I've ever done before in my entire life.
0: Cool. Well, I have every confidence that. It is going to be a great success. Everything you've done up until now has been an extraordinary success. And uh, yeah, even prepping for this episode, it has been a really nice experience. So for listeners to be aware, I have to do research and we have an amazing researcher, Serge Macise, who comes up with uh, potential topics to cover with guests. But in this case, Doris went out and she <laughs> brought lots of topic ideas to us. It just seems like you're such a thorough, thoughtful person, I have no doubt that Linea is going to be uh, a big success as well.
1: Thanks, thanks so much, Chad.
0: So the key problem that you're solving is a big pain point that I run into all the time at my job. So my team, the data scientists on my team, typically use Jupyter Notebooks to play around with how a model might work, how they might pre-process the data, how they might clean things up, creating charts of results or exploratory data analysis before we put it into the model. And then the actual modeling itself, largely happening in Jupyter Notebooks. We also have some people who use PyCharm, but Jupyter Notebooks are, I think the most common way today for people to be developing their models. And then you run into this problem where you want to take the model from the notebook and put it into production. And very often that means writing Python files from scratch. You're starting over maybe some copying and pasting from the Jupyter notebook, but it is certainly a big pain point. And so um, it can mean that modeling that might've taken a week or two then takes another week or two to get it into production. And it also means that we need to have people our data scientists who are doing the model development need to become pretty specialized at the kind of machine learning aspects, the machine learning engineering aspects um, of getting things into production. So this is a big pain point. And um, it seems like that is the problem that you've set out to solve. So it comes out of your PhD research, and we'll talk about your PhD research more later on. But um, yeah, this this pain point is something that you've managed to solve in just a couple lines of code. That's right. So for better or for worse, notebooks are used for experimentation during model development. And once a data scientist is finished with the experimentation in the notebook environment, models and the entire processing pipeline need to be deployed. So how does your startup, Linea, help solve that big pain point?
1: Yeah, so Linea, the solution is based on a very key observation, which is whatever is happening during development you know, at the end of it, what the data scientist is doing, is simply extracting a subset of what they've already done. And 90% of what they do during development does not make into production. And that is very natural. Mm -hmm. Right. And that whole process of extracting requires recalling dependencies, understanding um, basically the necessary and sufficient. That's what I call the subset of code that leads to that model. And this is not something that data scientists have the mental bandwidth to track while they're developing models. Their only mission during model development is to get to insights extremely quickly, and that allows them to train models that will perform extremely well in production. Right. So that means they are, um, that means they're incurring a lot of technical debt as they work. Right. Mm-hmm. So that means that's why there is a ton of um, time that goes into cleaning up their notebook and re- pruning out the extraneous parts that were simply for exploration or for understanding. Right, so what Linnea is able to do is a couple of things. One is that we are capturing everything that the data scientist is doing while they're doing development. And this is not something that other libraries support. For other solutions out there, data scientists have to be very deliberate with what they save, what they record. Whereas Linnea is very eager about capturing everything because there's a chance that any part of this could make it into production.
0: Interesting. And then
1: the second piece about Linnea is that, you know, the process by which data scientists clean up their notebook, it's actually very mechanical, but it's very mentally taxing because they've done so much during development,
0: Mm -hmm. right? So
1: what Linnea is able to do is we are able to analyze every single line of code during development, such that we understand the dependency between all the different operations that the data scientist has done in order to prune out things that were not leading up to the final model for production. Right. So that's part one of what Linia does. And nice. part two is uh, also based on the observation that a lot of times data scientists need to translate what happened in their notebook, you know that raw Python script that comes out of the cleaning process, the refactoring process, um, and they have to translate it into a different framework. For example, Apache Airflow is a very common framework right. for running pipelines in production. And the translation process also takes a long time because these are not frameworks that data scientists work with on a regular basis. They are frameworks that data engineers love to use because They lead to stability, they lead to reproducibility, and these are very desirable for production models, right? So the process of translating is very onerous for the data scientists. They have to reorient their thinking, they have to learn a new framework. um, And we think that's actually very unnecessary because the two programs are describing exactly the same logical workflow. And if we're able to understand at a semantic level what that workflow is, it becomes very straightforward to be able to translate between the two stacks. And that's what Linnea does with just two lines of code. That's the really magical part about Linnea is that it's extremely low code because we do a ton of heavy lifting for the data scientists in the background as they work. So by the time they're ready to productionize something, Linnea is able to basically streamline all of the productionization software engineering for the data scientists.
0: Awesome, sounds super helpful and my team may need to try this out ourselves. Um, So you've had amazing alpha users. I've mentioned some of them already like Twitter, Lyft, Pinterest. Do you have one or two case studies uh, for how Linea has enabled um, either a specific company or maybe just speaking more generally, whatever you can disclose. Um, I'd love to hear about a couple use cases of how Linea has been helpful to a data science team.
1: i love to tell the story of our first design partner, Mike. The way that we got Mike to try Linea was very interesting. We first got to talking to Mike because we really wanted to hire him. He had very relevant, back, relevant background. And he decided that he was comfortable where he was. But a couple months later, he actually hit me up on LinkedIn himself. And he said, hey, are you guys still working on the thing that you told me about? I've been trying to build something just like Linia at my current <laughs> job, and it's not quite working out. I'd love to talk to you guys. And mm. when he saw the product that we developed, mm. he was so excited that he ended up joining us part-time. Nice. It was like, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Mike has been using Linia for his day-to-day work, and it's been absolutely transformational for him. Before Linia, he was given a whole bunch of very messy notebooks by the data scientists at his organization. And he's receiving um, you know, tons of notebooks every day, and he has to go through every single one of them, try to understand what's going on in there so he could translate what's happening in there into airflow. And that is very, very hard for Mike given that he just hasn't had visibility into how the science was done. Right. This process is extremely time consuming. It's very mechanical and he has to do this over and over again. So when he got introduced to Linnea, he felt like he was saving about 40% of his day-to-day time on. That sounds to about
0: right. Chart. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me.
1: Yeah. So that was, um, Um, our first design partner, Mike. So the second use case is for a data, uh, sorry, production engineer at a big tech company. I won't say which one. What he was tasked with was being able to monitor the health of thousands of data pipelines at his organization. And if any single task within a pipeline ever goes down or it was stuck, he needed to understand the downstream implications for everything and because everything is intermingled it was extremely difficult for him to understand the intricate interdependencies and this is speaks to kind of the second benefit for linea which is being able to understand not only how a single model came to be but also how all the different artifacts artifacts meaning models or data sets charts everything that a data scientist produces are related to each other and this allowed our design partner to be able to say if this task is taking forever all of these other pipelines that are feeding into dashboards or feeding into production models they need to be alerted because there's potentially a failure for them or there's potentially other issues that could arise so he was super excited to get his hands on Linea because now he has answers to a lot of the questions that he wasn't able to answer before.
0: Cool. Yeah, I love those use cases. And it it underlines the same kind of issue that I was describing that getting models from our uh, playground environment into our production environment can be such a chore. And so that 40% figure that you said, you know, saving 40% of your time, that sounds about right to me. I can imagine yeah, huge time savings through using a tool like Linea. And I can't wait to try it out myself. So clearly, you've been able to convince a lot of people that this is a revolutionary idea. You have amazing investors already, and even more lined up uh, to be announced soon. So very exciting times. What was the initial point that led you to founding this company? I know that Some of the work you were doing in your PhD inspired this a little bit, but but yeah, when did you actually decide, I'm going to do this, I'm going to found a company and solve this really thorny problem?
1: So the mission of Linea actually came from way back to my first job out of college. I was what we now call an ML engineer. Back then, that wasn't even a term yet. Mm-hmm. at a big tech company. My team had over 30 ML PhDs on it. I was extremely excited to be part of that. And what was really uh, turn, turned out to be a little disappointing that my entire job was just data plumbing. All of the mm-hmm. data scientists got to do the super exciting modeling work. And after they're done with that, they bring their model to me and they say, now make a pipeline out of it, put it into production. That process was very important because until that process happens, the models are not generating any business value. At the same time, it was extremely mechanical. It was not the most satisfying work. And that's what um, inspired me to go to grad school. I was basically thinking that if I wasn't able to do machine learning in industry, maybe I should go to grad school, look at all the PhDs on my team. And I spent the first couple of years in grad school exploring all the different ML algorithms, exploring ML research. And it turned out that where my passion really lied was in building systems to support other data scientists Mm -hmm. to make use of machine learning. And that's what really inspired me to go on the mission for what we're doing at Linea today. And in terms of wanting to do a startup.
0: um, So just to kind of recap there, so you're at a big tech company, you're working on what we would today call machine learning engineering types of problems, productionizing algorithms, the key problem that Linnea solves. And you saw that there were all these machine learning PhDs around you that were getting to do what seemed like the cool stuff of actually training the models. You started a PhD, you're training models yourself, you get familiar with it, and you're like, you know what, actually, that problem from my internship was actually a really exciting problem to be solving. And I'm even more passionate about that. And so you, yeah, and then you ended up spending most of your PhD focused on that. We're gonna dig into some of the specific papers later, um, but yeah, is that a pretty good recap <laughs> of that Absolutely. Experience?
1: Yeah, nice. yeah, that, that's perfect.
0: Nice, so then when was it? Was it during your PhD, right at the end of your PhD, that you had this spark, this inclination to actually found your own company?
1: So the inspiration for doing a startup actually came to me before grad school.
0: Oh, wow. I
1: decided to um, blow off some steam between my first full-time job and grad school by doing an internship at Databricks. And there I got to write a lot of Spark Code, which was super fun. But what's really exciting was seeing the very early stage of a startup. That journey was incredible to me. And that's what really got me very interested in thinking about Wow, wouldn't it be nice if I got to do this for myself one day? And Mm -hmm. that's where I started thinking about what that could look like. And so during my PhD, there's been many moments where I thought about how I can connect what I'm doing, connect my passion to the idea of wanting to found a startup. So other people, from their perspective, it felt like you know I took the plunge into the deep end of the pool. I founding a startup after my PhD. I feel like what really happened was I've been pacing on the platform for many, many years before I took the plunge.
0: Right. That's so cool. I really applaud that. I mean, it is, it really is, I think, one of the most exciting and impactful things we can do in the world is to go off and start our own thing. And it is, Certainly, you know, a a scary path or a risky path for a lot of people, but this kind of methodical way that you've approached it where you already years ago had this idea, I want to do something like Databricks. I want to have my own startup. And then going through an entire PhD program where you're thinking about that and you're kind of laying the foundations psychologically as well as practically, that is brilliant. And so we've had, we we had a guest on the show recently who uh, didn't finish his PhD and has had an amazing career since. And he made the argument on air that almost nobody should do a PhD. He was like, um, unless like, he, he listed some very narrow circumstances where he thought that you should actually do a PhD. But you just outlined an outstanding use of one. Like, I would love to have that kind of opportunity now to be able to take several years to dig deep into some problem that I can relate something and spin it out. That is, a, yeah, such a brilliant use of of that time. And uh, yeah, congratulations on on getting going with this. Um, Thanks, John. So when you were doing your PhD research, one of the main focuses was on increasing the efficiency of machine learning development. I mean, (laughs) clearly. And so, for example, there is your Helix paper that you're a first author on, as well as your PhD dissertation itself. And so I'll be be sure to include those in the show notes for people to review. And one solution that you propose in that Helix paper or in your uh, dissertation is accelerating the pipeline, the machine learning engineering pipeline, by optimizing the... Directed Acyclic Graph, the DAG of a Machine Learning Workflow. Can you fill us in on what DAGs are and how they can speed up development as much as tenfold?
1: Absolutely. So a DAG is a way to represent a machine learning workflow. So when we think about a machine learning workflow, there are operations to read the data, to pre-process the data, to train the model, to validate the model, and to push models into production, right? So there's a sequence of steps and sometimes it's not a straight line. There there might be um, multiple pre-processing operators that are feeding into downstream pipelines and that's what makes it a DAG, right? So it's not just a straight line, it's a bunch of operations that are interconnected. So that's what a DAG is. And so Helix was able to take advantage of this DAG representation by observing that Across iterations, the data scientist really isn't changing their workflow much. And that's because they are good data scientists. You can't be changing 20 different things and be able to understand the implication of your changes. And what that allowed us to do is be able to very intelligently cache intermediate results within that DAG so we can avoid redundant computation in future iterations. For example, if the data scientist only changed a model hyperparameter from one iteration to the next, they really shouldn't be recomputing the preprocessing part of it. And Helix was right. able to recognize this fact, and that's how we were able to really speed up the development process.
0: Awesome. That is a very good explanation of DAGS and how it can speed things up. Um, in another paper of yours from your research, um, so in this one, uh, it's another first author paper of yours. Um, and this one was in Sigmod in 2021. And so in that one, by analyzing over a 1,000 production pipelines at Google, you realized that there was wasted computation. So how does your approach reduce that wasted computation and what implications would something like that have for organizational efficiency and beyond maybe even things like carbon footprint of uh, big organizations and big models that they train
1: that's a great question and that paper was really interesting because the data set that i was working with was very unique how often do you get to see over 3000 production pipelines at a big tech company yeah so the um So we started by just analyzing all the data pipelines to see what's even out there. And the analysis was extremely difficult because we were trying to look at the execution trace of all of these pipelines. And it's this giant messy graph because model training is dependent on um, a sliding window of data. So that means across two consecutive model training, you have interlinked data dependencies. And that's what Mm -hmm. made the graph extremely messy. So the first thing we had to do was just to figure out a mechanism to even do the analysis. And the way we did that was by proposing this concept of a graphlet. What we did there was to segment this giant trace into smaller graphlets that encapsulates an end-to-end execution of the pipeline that contains a model training, right? What we were able to see there is that, A, the graphlets take a long time to compute when you have a lot of data, when your model is very complex. Each of these graphlets consumed a lot of computation. And the other thing that we realized was even though the end goal of a graphlet is to push a model to production, over 30% of them actually didn't do that. And that was a very interesting insight. And we dug into why this is happening. This is not desirable because, you know, until you push the model into production, this graphlet was just wasted computation. So we really wanted to understand, is there a way for us to prevent this in the first place? And some of the hypotheses that we came up with were maybe the graph didn't push model because the data drift. Was too severe. Or maybe the workflow structure changed. Maybe the model type, you know, if it's a logistic regression or CalmNet, they might correlate with model failures more. So, and the other one is when data scientists change their code across model training. So these are some of the reasons that we hypothesized. And the way that we were The way that we were analyzing how these different features correlate with wasted computation was actually by using a machine learning model itself. We trained a random forest model to be able to predict whether a graphlet was going to push a model to production using all of these features. And the outcome was that this model itself was able to identify correctly over 50% of the graphlets that ended up not pushing a model so it was able to reduce 50% of the wasted computation and right. by analyzing the model uh, correlation between the model and the features we saw a couple of very interesting things the first thing was that the model type was a very weak indicator of whether graphless were going to fail so that means logistic regression comnets they're equally likely to lead to wasted computation. And the other thing that was very surprising was that the code change really didn't matter either. So when data scientists tweaked their workflows, that was a contributing factor to failed graphlets. And the things that were the most relevant were data change, as we have hypothesized when data drifts, that could lead to model behaving poorly. And the other thing was, workflow structure change. So sometimes the number of operators within the DAG could change because data scientists have decided to uh, transform their data differently, or maybe they wanted to put a couple models together and then do an ensemble model. And these factors contributed heavily to graphlets failing and therefore to wasted computation. And John, back to your original question about the implication of wasted computation. Mm -hmm. It is a huge amount of energy that we are consuming.
0: Right. Yeah. So you're you're talking about just in terms of like rough numbers here that I'm just kind of jotting down. If 30% of these graphlets um, aren't leading to a production model and your model is able to predict half of those and eliminate them, that's 15% of all the computation that's happening, which is... a 15% of an absolutely monstrous number. When you're thinking about the big tech companies like Google, the amount of energy that that's saving is huge. You know, that's way more than any individual in their lifetime. You know, all those times you're like, oh, I better make sure I recycle this or like turn off the lights or switch to an electric vehicle. Like all of the changes that an individual could make in terms of their behaviors would be negligible. Uh, I mean, many, many, many times over with respect to like this kind of monstrous um, reduction in, in wasted compute. Um, so I realize you were about to make that point, And I'm kind of stealing your thunder, but I'm just so excited <laughs> about how, how big that number is.
1: And I just want to highlight that the data scientists weren't aware of this until we th- did this study. They just didn't even realize this was a problem yeah, and right. they didn't have the mechanism to prevent it
0: this is a really good example of how so there's an organization called 80,000 hours that is focused on trying to help people pick careers where they can have a really big impact. And so we had we've talked about this a few times on the show, most notably because we had one of the founders of 80,000 hours on our show last year, uh, Ben Todd in episode number 497. Um, but then also we more recently talked about, um, this with, uh, Jeremy Harris in episode number five sixty five, And so, uh, so 80,000 hours, one of their, um, main, so the reason why we were talking about it in the episode with Jeremy Harris is because their number one recommendation, if you want to make a big impact on uh, the future of humanity is an AI safety research. So trying to avoid, uh, having AGI's that, uh, you know, enslave humans or just kill us all. Um, But another one of it in like their, maybe it's like number two or number three in their list of careers of how you can make an impact is as a founder of a company, uh, solving engineering problems. And it's, and so this is a perfect example of how you're founding a company that solves problems like this, that people weren't even aware were a problem, and now all of a sudden you're saving 15% of the computation of this massive, massive energy consuming budget. That's like, it's, yeah, kind of going back to my point of, it doesn't even, in, in the scheme of that, it doesn't matter how many flights you don't take or how often you turn off the lights. Like as an individual, it's, yeah, the, the individual impact that you're making with this kind of innovation, um, you know, creating the engineering innovation and then, um Creating a startup to broaden that impact, it just just—it—it goes to show how that is one of the most impactful kind of career choices you can make. And so, sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, <laughs> but I'm really excited about what, you, what you're doing. Um, and so, yeah. Thank you so thanks. much, John. Yeah.
1: Thank you for highlighting that. I never actually thought about it that way.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, if you think about that in contrast, so one of the, so often people, I, I'm now going off on a tangent and I promise, listener, we'll get back to Doris and Berlinia's story in a second. But there is a really interesting idea that a lot of people have when they want to make an impact in the world, they think, oh, you know, I want to be a doctor. I want to, I want to save people. Well, actually, if you become a doctor, your net positive impact on average is zero. Because if you hadn't become a doctor, Someone else would have gotten into med school instead of you and they would have been just about as good as you. They would have had to pass the same admission tests. And uh, so if you want to have a big impact, being a doctor isn't the way to do it. <laughs> um, but things like uh, solving engineering problems and creating startups to broaden the impact of those engineering problems. So it's so interesting to hear that you say like, oh, I hadn't even thought about it that way. whereas. People who are probably doctors, they're thinking to themselves, oh, I'm making such a big difference every day. (laughs) And uh, yeah, anyway, so it's just interesting how there's these, uh, yeah, how different careers kind of have that different like social perception. And uh, yeah, when you actually dig into, you know, the numbers and who would be replacing people and that kind of thing, it is the kind of work you're doing that is super, super impactful.
1: I do appreciate all the doctors saving lives out there. So they collectively are making a difference. I never thought of, you know.
0: They are collectively making a difference, but any individual doctor's decision to become a doctor on average has no impact on the world. That's
1: an interesting point to think about.
0: (laughs) If all, if everyone realized that and nobody became a doctor, we'd have a really big problem. So it falls yes. apart, like, yeah, it, it only works on an individual basis, not on a collective basis. Obviously, in aggregate, everything that all doctors are doing is brilliant. And I do thank you very much, doctors. Uh, but yeah, uh, anyway, uh, so I've completely derailed the conversation. Um, so yeah, so I don't know <laughs> if you want to say any more about that Sigmund paper, or if you'd like me to move on to... Another paper. If, if there were any points that you didn't get to say that I that I've cut off with my rude diatribe that uh, cut into all the physicians out there.
1: No, <laughs> oh, no, not at all. I I think I yeah I think I said everything I needed to about that paper. So
0: nice. Okay. All right. So then here's another exciting one of yours. So it's yet another first author paper from your PhD called Wither Auto AutoML, um, which I had to look up Wither. <laughs> <laughs> in a dictionary, you, you can explain that one to us in a second. So, in this paper, you interviewed machine learning practitioners to understand how they leveraged auto ML, so algorithms that um, automate kind of hyperparameter selection choices in models, or maybe even which model you use. Um, and you concluded that currently, the complete automation of machine learning is neither realistic nor desirable. So, what led you to that conclusion? And what future do you envision for Auto ML tools?
1: So, wither Auto ML, this title actually came from my advisor. The word itself means what is the future of Auto ML? And this is something I had to look up when he proposed this title as well. So we're in the same boat there, John. Um, so what made us realize? So for this paper, we interviewed over 15 practitioners who are currently using AutoML solutions. We got to understand very deeply their use cases, the tools they were using, their organization, as well as their day-to-day work practices. What we found was that there is generally a lack of explainability to all the AutoML, AutoML solutions out there. This was very problematic for them because at the end of the day, a human being is responsible for the model's behavior. And if they weren't able to explain what really happened, how we got to this model, that level of accountability simple wasn't, simply wasn't there for them. Therefore, they really wanted to have a lot more control over the model process, modeling process. I think it was great for some of them to be able to try out a a bunch of different hyperparameters early on but once you got to a stage where re- you're really thinking about productionizing a model they wanted a lot more control so that was part of the reason why it wasn't desirable to fully automate everything and the realistic side was mostly about the ability for the systems out there to capture human intuition and human domain knowledge imagine if you're looking at a dataset you know for a drug prediction or something of that nature, right? For a auto ML solution, these are just columns of numbers. But for a physician, for example, um, some of these columns embed a lot more information than just these numbers out there, right? And they are able to bring their intuition into the process to help the model really understand the intricate relationships between the different features in there. So, and I think we're quite a bit of, You know, we're still pretty far away from being able to somehow uh, encapsulate the human intuition and human domain knowledge.
0: Right. Um, So maybe this is the kind of challenge that Linnea, maybe years from now, could figure out an answer to.
1: Absolutely. This is something that Linnea is actually very excited about tackling in five years or 10 years time. I strongly believe by that time, we would have a couple of things figured out. One is being able to represent human knowledge in a way that's a lot more consumable for the computer in the first place. And the second piece is, and this is what I think is absolutely crucial for AutoML to gain more traction, is to figure out how to make the human a collaborator in the process. Instead of completely trying to automate the human out of the loop. Yeah, And there's a lot of excitement about human in the loop computing today. And I believe in the next five years, we're going to see some amazing progress.
0: Yeah, I agree with you there. And that's, that's where I see the interaction between humans and machines going. And by the way, this paper was in CHI, which is the most prestigious paper for these kinds of computer-human interactions, which is where the CHI name comes from. Um, And so there's some people worry about machines taking lots of jobs and they do, they they can, you know, they increasingly take uh, automatable, uh, that's that's a silly thing to say. Automation takes the most automatable jobs, takes the most repetitive jobs, um, but it does open up other opportunities. And this is that kind of example where um, tools may come up that automate aspects of a data scientist's workflow, but those aren't going to eliminate the data scientist. In fact, it creates the opportunity for there to be more data scientists having a bigger impact across even more models than ever before. Um, Because yes, having a human in the loop with these kinds of interactions, um, it's it's the same kind of idea as um, prior to the 1990s, Prior to Deep Blue playing against Gary Kasparov and beating Gary Kasparov, um, there was this idea of a human against a machine. Um, and, you know, for a while it was like, you know, computers can't be as smart as a human at this complex thing like chess. And then it's like, oh, crap, they can be. But what the great chess masters did then wasn't to discount computers. It was to work with them and to see how they could use guidance from machines to like, oh, what would you know, what would I do here? And what does the machine recommend doing here? Okay, well, um, I appreciate that guidance in this case, or maybe that gives you an idea. But instead of doing what you're suggesting, computer, I'm going to go with my idea. And so that uh, working together with the machine allow is a more powerful pairing than the machine on its own.
1: Absolutely. I think, absolutely, you hit the nail on the head, John, by saying what we're doing with automation isn't to... I will compete the human. It's rather to augment the human, to give the Mm -hmm. human more opportunity to focus on what they do best.
0: Yep, exactly. So super cool that that's something that could be uh, in Linnea's future as well. So thank you so much for taking us on that tour of some of your big uh, research breakthroughs. So your Helix paper with the DAGs um, that can increase uh, the productivity of production workflows by up to 10x by avoiding um, unnecessary processing steps. Um, reducing wasted compute by predicting which graphlets um, are not going to lead to any production results and then also how um, yeah, how AutoML isn't something that uh, we can completely replace with people today. Um, So thank you for that. Uh, Very cool to kind of dig into the weeds on some of your research. Uh, Switching gears a bit, um, and talking kind of about what you're doing today and what it's like in your role. What is it like day-to-day being the CEO of an early stage tech startup like Linia?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> that's a wonderful question because it triggers a lot of reflection on the past year. So Linia has been around for a year at this point. And I think the CEO role is extremely poorly defined. You're the C everything officer. Uh, You know, if if you're (laughs) out of snacks in the office.
0: That's what CEO, I guess, stands for. The chief everything officer.
1: (laughs) Early stage of a startup, that's absolutely what it is. Um, So I think the biggest learning curve for me is to understand that being a CEO isn't about doing things. It's about putting in the infrastructure to support your team to do to unite your team behind a common mission to really excel at doing something absolutely transformative. That requires talking to customers, going out and getting customers, hiring the best talent to build a solution, Uh, logistical things like getting an office so our engineers can be in the same place and talk to each other and Lightboard and riff, And yeah, just everything It takes to have a functional organization and thinking about culture at the same time. One thing I realized is that culture, you know, there's a saying out there, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And for an early stage startup, a lot of people don't realize that culture shouldn't be accidental. It needs to be very deliberate. And how to be deliberate with culture is something that I think a lot about, that I read a lot of books on. And it's still not 100% clear to me, but I think <laughs> <laughs> what, what's helpful is to codify the values that your organization embodies and then think about very specific actions that you can carry out to align yourself with those values.
0: Super cool. Yeah, so, so Chief Everything Officer, but in these early stages, the culture piece is a big part of it. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense, yeah, you know, you're shaping you're laying the foundations for what the culture of the firm will be like in the future. And I interrupted you, as you were saying earlier, something about ordering snacks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm sorry for speaking over you. I didn't get you the chance let, let you have the chance to get back to that. but I think probably that was one of maybe several examples you had of the kinds of things that you need to do in an early stage startup because there's no one else to do it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we have a hybrid team. Some of our members are remote. So we also have to um, organize socials. We've done a bunch of virtual escape rooms. And that was oh, me having no. to go online and search for all sorts of different remote, remote team building activities.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I don't do a good enough job of, well, actually, I, so I, in one on ones with my remote team members, I'll say things like, do you want to have like more of these kinds of things and all of them and on my current team. And it's so in the future, this might change, but right now they've said like, no, like I just have that time. <laughs> I'm like, all right. Um, but yeah, that's cool that you found things like that. I haven't heard of that a virtual escape room. That's fun.
1: Yeah. We've done a bunch of these and we keep doing them because everybody loves them.
0: Nice. That's super cool. Um, so what is your, if you had to pick one thing, one particular aspect of what you do professionally, what would be your one favorite thing?
1: My favorite thing about my job is at the end of a demo, the user says to me, is this magic? And that makes everything worthwhile.
0: Wow. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, that's so cool. And with a tool like yours, that's taking something that could take 40% of a data scientist's time and Uh, abstracting it under a couple lines of code (laughs) I can see that you would get a lot of those wows and I bet that that was very helpful for the early stage investment that you have already received from such illustrious folks, super cool Um, so as the chief everything officer of your firm um, what are the kinds of tools that you use on a daily basis? Do you still get to ever write any code or has that ship long sailed?
1: Ah Sometimes it's a lot more rare nowadays that I get to open up my PyCharm and, you know, start hacking on, you know, submit a PR for somebody to review. I do still use PyCharm, my favorite tool for some reason, to write uh, product requirements, user stories, um, and things of that nature. And other tools that I use on a day-to-day basis, Jupyter Notebooks, to understand the user experience, to be, you know, our in-house alpha user for the rest of the team. Right. Um, So Python, you know, everything in the data science ecosystem, I still use pretty frequently because of being in the alpha user for my team. Um, On the chief, (laughs) on the chief everything everything bucket, bucket, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the chief everything officer side, um, lots of, productivity tools like notion and also use lever for hiring and um (laughs) i probably spent way too much time on email clients
0: what did you decide on that's a big thing for me i actually went on a big rant uh, in a recent episode i'll try to avoid doing that again but (laughs) what email client have you gone with
1: i would just straight up gmail in a web browser is you know
0: Right. Yeah. That's what I've gone with too. I thought you meant you might have said that you spend a lot of time like trying out different email clients and trying to optimize. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I try a superhuman because that's...
0: Yeah, yeah. That's how we got talking about it. So that was, that's when I went on the rant that I'm not, I, I'm going to really try not to go on. But in episode 565 with Jeremy Harris, the same episode where we talked about um, AI safety, um, we talked about superhuman and yeah, he's a big fan of it, but it didn't really click for you in the same way.
1: I think I had my expectations might have been too high based on what other people seemed to be saying about the client. And it turned out All that right. the benefits were small delta over
0: right, web right, browser. Right. It wasn't a magic bullet. So the big rant that I went on in that episode was about Google Inbox. Did you ever use Google Inbox before they uh, canned it?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: Oh, okay, well, then I won't go on <laughs> It was, a, it was a free Google tool that sat on top of Gmail. So you used your Gmail account, but instead of logging into mail.google.com, you logged into inbox.google.com. And it was this amazingly zen, efficient experience. Um, but yeah, I, I won't go into the rant if listeners want to.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it just, I might've just buried it in my memory. Now that you talked about it, I think I checked it out when it first came out. There's like a mobile app. And it was,
0: it was a mobile app as well.
1: It was more stress inducing than Zen because you're constantly worried (laughs) about, you know, is this skipping an important email for me?
0: Right. Yeah, I guess I, I found it, it never, (laughs) you know, yeah, that, that, that is the risk. So you're relying on a machine learning algorithm to filter for you what is important and not. But I guess in, in the years that I was using it, I don't, I can't recall an instance where an email that I needed that day was held away from me until the next morning um, yeah, well, those days are gone, and nobody's stepped up to 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 bring in something quite as good anyway uh so <laughs> other than um your guidance on uh, the tools that you kind of use as the chief everything officer oh and then also so tell us a little bit more about notion and lever because we had did- so Lever is for human resources, right?
1: It's for managing your pipeline for for hiring candidates.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah, your inbound candidate flow. Right. Um, and then Notion, I forget what that is, but we had a guest on recently that was really excited about Notion.
1: It's kind of like a replacement for Confluence. It's like a wiki. Uh, yeah.
0: Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. It's kind of for notes.
1: (laughs) That's absolutely right. For notes, and they provide you with a lot of plugins to be able to embed things into your notes, like a database or a small snippet of a Google Doc and all sorts of bells and whistles that makes it a really nice experience.
0: That's cool. That sounds great. We should try that one out. All right. So we just mentioned Lever. Obviously, you do hiring. I believe that right now you have software engineering openings. So if any listeners are out there and they want to be getting involved extremely early in what is sure to be a very successful startup, then uh, that is something that you could do. So what do you look for, Doris, in the engineers or the data scientists that you hire?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one one of the biggest things that we look for in our hire is do they resonate with our mission. I can't, every every single person that we've hired, I recall at the end of the demo, they were absolutely blown away and they were already sold on the mission. Um, So that's a huge part of it. And the reason that they were so excited about this is they have some data science or data engineering background in their past to really identify with the mission and be able to understand the value that Linnea brings. So it's pretty important for us to um, have engineers that have that data science and data engineering empathy. They might not have done a ton of it themselves, but that empathy really helps us build product with a user in mind all the time.
0: Nice. That's a a really nice, uh, yeah, kind of key attribute to be looking for. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, So uh, if people are looking to get ahead as a data scientist or as a software engineer, um, where do you think these industries are going? Uh, So we've touched on this a little bit in the episodes. We talked about how AutoML, for example, isn't likely to replace data scientists, uh, though it could augment data scientists significantly in the years to come. So where is data science going and how can listeners prepare best for the future of data science?
1: I really believe that we are moving towards democratization of data science, meaning that you know we no longer need to hire ML PhDs to do the sort of work that were very specialized. Now we have a lot more tools to, like we mentioned, automate a lot of the um, mechanical side, but also the mathematical side as well. So that means. What's left for the human is their intuition, their analytical skills, right? So that means for the future of the workforce, a lot of it comes down to data literacy, Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. able to understand how you navigate the data, how you extract insight out of it using different algorithms, using different tools. And the second aspect is that people often forget the importance of productionization, right? If you don't go through that whole process that we talked about earlier on mm-hmm. with, you are not able to generate value from your data science yet. And we're starting to see a trend of data scientists owning the end to end, data scientists owning the end to end chain all the way from development to production. And the reason is, because A, it's really hard to hire data engineers. There's some statistics that say for every single opening for a data engineer, there are two applicants on average.
0: <laughs> so
1: a lot of data scientists are forced to do the yeah. data, data engineering themselves.
0: I, I wouldn't have been surprised if you said it was a fraction, but it was like <laughs> for every one opening, there's one third of an applicant.
1: <laughs> Is your team actively hiring for data engineers, John?
0: Um, we are looking for, yeah, we're always looking for great engineers for like everyone else. And we always, you know, this is a question that comes up a lot on the show is I'll say things like, like I did before the program, I asked if you had any particular opening so that when we talked about it on air, I was able to say that right now, Lenny is doing software engineering hiring. And while some of our guests are doing data science hiring, they are all Hiring machine learning engineers, software engineers, data engineers, uh, that is where the biggest bottleneck is. And so, again, listener, <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking to get hired in this field, uh, being a pure data scientist, you're still going to find work. But if you want to be super in demand, focus on some computer science skills, some software engineering skills, uh, for sure. Um, That's
1: exactly right. And that'll really help you elevate the value of your work.
0: Definitely, and that's then. That's also something that I've, I'm sure I've talked about on air before. Is that uh, any data scientist that we do hire, I don't require them to have engineering skills before they start. But on the job, it is inevitable. I mean, we are our company has something like thirty or forty technologists across product engineering and science. We're not big enough to have science to have data scientists solely be creating models and then passing that off if you want your model to get into production you're going to have to be involved in that um so uh, because that is there's kind of this i don't know if you have thoughts on this ratio i can't remember where i read this initially but it 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 is in line with my experience as a chief data scientist is that for every one person creating a model you need four people to put it into production although i guess linia is putting is maybe it'll all of a sudden be one to two uh if you're reducing forty percent of the time required uh, to get things into production, um, but that is kind of the split that we see you know it's there's there's lots having the model weights is great, and you need them. but having the model weights be accessible performantly in production is a huge undertaking that's so specific to your particular problem you're lucky if you have a problem that can be handled by something like um, Google Cloud's Lambda or AWS Lambda, it is. Google Cloud does have something equivalent, but it's AWS that has those Lambda functions. There, you know, it's lucky if you have that, but for a lot of problems to have them run performantly, there's like caching things that you need to be considering on your side and just passing it off to some cloud function isn't gonna work because the size of the data is too much. You'd have to wait for all of the data to be loaded by that cloud function. So there's Yeah, all kinds of memory and compute things that you need to be thinking about uh, to get your data science model into an actual production system. And it's that part where, yeah, we see the most, um, as I said at the beginning, it's where we see it's one of our biggest pain points. It's one of the pain points that Linnea is solving. (laughs) And, um, And yeah, it also means that if you're a data scientist on my team while you're on the job, You are going to learn how to engineer machine learning models. Otherwise, we're just not, we're going to have like this backlog of data science models that aren't getting into production and aren't making an impact. Anyway, Doris, so monologue over um, without divulging anything proprietary. um, uh, Do you have any other insight for us on where the biggest future opportunities lie? Maybe not just for data scientists, but, you know, in technology in general, like where are the big opportunities?
1: That's a big question, John.
0: (laughs) Uh, I know it's non fungible tokens.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Web3 is the future. It's already here. The future is here. (laughs) Um, I think, I mean, I think in the data land. So a lot of my thinking is skewed in that direction. Mm. In the data world specifically, and we already talked about you know, automating data engineering, accelerating that process. It's going to be the topic of the next few years. And further down the road, I do believe that we'll get to a point where data scientists becomes like the Internet. It's that accessible of technology. When we think about the Internet, you know, we don't think about TCP IP. We don't think about all the underlying tech we just log into a browser and you know use it. Whereas for data science, we need to think about Airflow, all these different libraries, Spark, all of these things. I do believe eventually one day we will just be able to have something that's a lot better, well, that's really well packaged to the point that data scientists just have to imp- imp- or declaratively say that this is my objective, this is my data, Let's figure out how to use data science to do something interesting.
0: Cool. I love that vision. And it sounds like you are building that future this very day. Super cool, Doris. All right. Thank you for your brilliant insights into your research, into your company, into what it's like to be a CEO of an early stage tech startup. Uh, Starting to wind down the episode here. Do you have a book recommendation for us?
1: I have read... A lot of nonfiction since I found Linnea. And <laughs> the one that stands out in my mind right now is Start With Why by Simon Sinek.
0: Nice. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That book really resonated with me because it really challenged me to think about why we do what we do at Linea. Why? Why do our customers want to use it at a very deep fundamental level? Like yes they want to productionize but why do they want to productionize right so we can ask the five layers of why and that really gets into like the deep deep motivations of what data scientists do on a daily basis and how they're hoping to make an impact
0: cool i love that recommendation and i think it's been recommended on the show a number of times um listeners can check so we put um all of the book recommendations that come on the show Uh, Ivana, our podcast manager, aggregates them into uh, superdatascience.com books. There's a Google sheet there with a record of all the books that have been recommended. And I bet if we look that one up, start with why has been recommended quite a few times. Um, It's definitely a classic. It's yeah, it must be hugely impactful. All right. So clearly, Doris, you're a brilliant speaker, leader, an engineer. How can people stay up to date on the latest from you, as well as from Linnea.
1: You're too kind, John. Um, to follow us, please uh, follow us on Twitter. We'll have the handle in the bottom. Uh, For
0: sure, we'll have it in the show notes, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, in the show notes. And uh, you can also follow me personally on Twitter at me underscore dorks. And we also have a Linnea community Slack where we're going to be periodically send out product update, But at the same time, it's also a community for folks who are interested in Linea, but also interested in, you know, getting help on productionizing their data science workflow to have a discourse. So if you're interested in any of that, please join our Slack. Please follow us on Twitter. And also please go check out our open source library called LineaPy. Search for L-I-N-E-A-P-Y on GitHub and you should be able to find the repo there.
0: Sweet. So with Pi, people can get started on trying out this amazing magic that we've been outlining for them all episode long. Super cool. Nice. Well, thank you so much for being on the program, Doris. It's been such a great episode. And yeah, maybe we can check in again in a few years and hear from you on how the Linea journey is coming along.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John. I look forward to reconnecting as well.
0: Dr. Shin is such an inspiring, thoughtful, and visionary entrepreneur. I loved getting to know her during today's episode, and I have no doubt that a tremendous future lies ahead for her and Linnea. In today's episode, Doris filled us in on how in just one or two lines of code, Linnea cleans up Jupyter Notebooks and deploys ML models into production. How DAGs can 10x production workflow efficiency by avoiding unnecessary processing steps, How 30% of graphlets amongst the ML pipelines at Google don't impact production systems, and how half of these can be predicted, thereby significantly reducing wasted computation. How the intuitions behind devising ML models are not fully representable today, but could be in 5-10 to years, and how thanks to the democratization of data science, PhDs are no longer essential to developing ML models effectively, but data literacy is more important than ever. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Doris' social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles, at superdatascience.com 573. That's superdatascience.com 573. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana Ziber, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aromenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another incredible episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.